this morning is our 52nd Sunday morning service at Prodigal Church. 52. So for one year, we've been meeting in this theater at 10 a.m. Um, we began meeting August 13th, 2017, and we met for six weeks, and then we officially launched on September 24th of last year, and uh, we're going to celebrate our birthday then, but we have had 52 services. We have learned a ton, um, grown a ton, experienced incredible growth, seen so many lives changed um, by Jesus, and on September 9th of this year, uh, we're going to be adding an additional Sunday morning service. So we're going to be a 9.30 and an 11. We're excited. Uh, uh, this, I really believe, will be a catalytic step for Prodigal Church in three ways. One, it opens up more seats for people to come to know and love Jesus. Uh, number two, it gives us more opportunities and options for first-time guests to attend, whether an early service or a later service. And three, it gives people who are already committed to Prodigal Church uh, an opportunity to step up and take lead, to really take ownership, that this is my church and I want to see it continue to grow and expand for the purpose of God and His kingdom here in Fresno on earth as it is in heaven. So we're excited. September 9th, it's going to be great. You'll hear a lot more about that over the upcoming weeks, um, but it's an exciting time here at Prodigal Church. Last week, we looked at the story of Ruth, and that story takes place during the time of the judges. Remember, Hebrews gone wild, right? A lot of crazy stuff that happens. This morning, we turn our attention to the story of Deborah, which is also found in the time of Judges, actually in the book of Judges. Uh, judges is an action-packed book. The way that the early audience would have seen the, the book of Judges um, wouldn't be some mundane, boring Bible passage. It would have been more like how we view action films today, except for that in the background, uh, behind the scenes, God is at work within real human history. These are not comic book characters, but it was so that God could ever so slowly teach Israel that there is a moral and spiritual reality underneath it all. So here's the context for our story. God has freed the Hebrews from Egypt, right? Moses, let my people go. And then, sorry, do I sound like I'm in a tunnel a little bit? Um, let my people go. They go into the wilderness, then they enter into the promised land, and they don't have a king yet, and so they're living in this Hebrews gone wild kind of phase. Judges 4.1, it says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, this is key. This is the beginning of the sin cycle in Judges. Uh, this is what happens. We got a graph on the screen. Israel serves the Lord. Then Israel falls into sin. And then they become ruled by another. And then they cry out for God's help. God raises up a judge. And then Israel serves the Lord again. And they just go around and around. This cycle continues throughout the entire book of Judges numerous times. And this morning, we're going to look at one particular cycle in this story of Judges. The text continues, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hagoyim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord. So King Jabin had this general named Sisera. He's the arch villain in the story. And the original name may have meant meditation, but the Hebrew audience would have heard something like Kenan Swift or Hawkeye, okay? It sounded just like that. So Sisera, Hawkeye, okay? He's our bad guy. 
And the technology of the Canaanites far surpassed that of Israel. See, the bad guys here, they have Iron Age technology, which is key because Israel at the time does not. They have iron chariots, 900 actually. And Sisera is cruel and violent and evil, and we don't fully understand all of the, the evil of his ways until we get to chapter 5. But Israel's in trouble. They need a hero. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Deborah's a warrior, but she's also a prophet. And she's the only judge mentioned in scripture to have both roles. She functioned as a governor. She functioned as a judge. She functioned as a warrior, as well as a prophet. And married Israelite women are normally identified by their husband's name. And here it says that Deborah is the wife of Lapidoth. Uh, the word translated wife can also be translated as woman. And then lapidoth means torches. So this literally can be understood as woman, a fiery woman. So here's this fiery woman leading Israel. The author's original audience would have heard both meanings. And the name Deborah itself means honeybee. Okay, it's cute. Uh, there's a lot of buzz about her. And... Uh, <laughs> And so here's this fiery woman with lots of buzz leading the people of God. This is no small thing in a very male-dominated world. In a culture and in a world where women were most often seen as property, Deborah, this honeybee, refused to be hive. <laughs> I should have quit when I was ahead, right? <laughs> Israel's being led in the middle of this crisis by a woman. Now, many people think that according to the Bible, women are, are not supposed to lead men. But here she is. Sometimes Christians say, it's okay for a woman to lead children or to lead other women, but a woman can't lead a man. Here the Bible quite literally tells us Deborah is the wife of Lapidoth, and she's leading Israel. Lapidoth is part of Israel, and so Deborah is leading her husband. This is, this is God's choosing. Throughout Christian history, women have been oppressed and suppressed, and I, this is not the desire of God. In Deborah, we see women leading, leading well. She's a judge, she's a governor, she's a prophet. Christians should be leading the way in the equality for people. Women were instrumental in the ministry of Jesus. It was a woman, uh, his mother Mary, who prompted Jesus to perform his first miracle. It was women, Mary and Martha, who ministered to Christ during his public ministry, it was the women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, who stayed with Jesus throughout this trial and crucifixion. And it was women, Mary, Joanna, and Mary, who were the first witnesses of the resurrected God. Paul says this in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The New Testament proclaims equality long before we ended slavery and long before we ended women's suffrage in the 20th century. And can I just say the women here at Prodigal Church are inspiring. Uh, we have some amazing women in our church. They are leading in incredible ways. And not only are they a great encouragement to our church, but they're an great encouragement and inspiring to me. The story continues this, verse 6. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord 
The God of Israel commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Into your hands, Barak. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Here we're introduced uh, to, to the, uh, another general of an army, but it's not the Canaanite army, it is Israel's army. We're introduced to Barak, and his name means lightning, okay, lightning. Here's a picture of, of Barak. Uh, <laughs> Can we do that? Is that is like secret service around? Um, so Barak is Israel's general, and he says, I'm not going to go to battle without you, Deborah. I'm not going without you. There was something about her leadership, something about her presence, with it, he didn't want to leave. And so Deborah says, well, certainly I will go with you. But then she changes her prophecy, right? The prophecy was, the Lord will deliver Sisera into your hands, Barak. But then she says, no, 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 because of the course you are taking, now the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. It's no longer that Sisera will be handed to Barak's hands. Obviously leading the reader to believe that it's Deborah. And nobody would expect this. A girl, she can't fight. Girls aren't supposed to be the heroes. There are books that Christian authors in our day have written, and they say this, boys are made by God to be warriors, and girls are made to be princesses that the warriors fight over. It just so happens that the Bible isn't one of those books. <laughs> when the victory is told, people will say that not that Barak defeated Sisera, but that a woman defeated Sisera. This is so subversive. Lois Lane is the rescuee, not the rescuer. Superman is supposed to fight Lex Luthor. Batman's supposed to fight Joker. And Lightning Barak is supposed to fight Hawkeye Sisera. That's how it's supposed to be. But here in the Bible, Barak won't be the hero at all. Verse 10. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali and 10,000 men, went up under his command. Deborah also went with them. So he calls the troops uh, Deborah goes with him as he asks, and the armies are ready to battle, right? The, the bad guys are on one side, the good guys are on the other. Here's the showdown. This is the big climactic moment. Everybody pause with anticipation, and here comes the blood and the gore because this is the real battle. But that's, that's what we're supposed to see. That's not what we see. Here's the next line in the story. Now, Heber, the Kenite, pitched his tent by the great tree near Kadesh. Who in the world cares about Heber the Kenite? And what's the deal with pitching a tent near a tree? Why are you moving away from the battle scene that we all want to see to some random dude pitching his tent? And the story gets even stranger. See, there is a battle, and Israel does defeat Sisera and his army of iron chariots, but the battle doesn't get described here at all. Uh, in fact, we, don't have, we can go to Deborah's song, which is the next chapter in Judges 5, and it gives us some more of the details. We find out there that God sent a rainstorm, and then the, the Kadesh River, uh, or the Kishon River, flooded. And now these iron chariots that were supposed to be the tanks of the ancient world that gave Sisera such a great advantage now became a liability and they're routed by Israel. 
And it gets stranger. The, the bad guys lose. But then Sisera, the bad guy, he gets away on foot. He flees. He runs away. Verse 16. Barak pursued the chariots and army as fast as Herosheth, as far as Herosheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of, the, uh, of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. Another irony, Sisera's army just got routed because of water and he goes into this tent and asks for water himself. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. The story takes another unexpected twist when the evil army general abandons his defeated army and seeks shelter in the tent of Jael. So we're introduced to another woman in this action film. She's the last character we're introduced to, Jael. She's the husband. Uh, she, her husband is an ally of Sisera, and she is not a Hebrew. Her name means mountain goat, okay? <laughs> mountain goat. The men in our story are named Hawkeye and Lightning, and the girls are Honeybee and Mountain Goat. <laughs> so Sisera flees on foot. He comes to a tent, the tent of Jael, Mountain Goat, who's the wife of Heber the Kenite. Now, the Kenites, they were not part of Israel, okay? They were not the good guys. They were tent dwellers. They were nomads. They were blacksmiths. They were the ones contracted by Sisera and King Jabin to make the iron chariots that were conquering Israel. They had an alliance with the bad guy. Jael says to Sisera, come on in. He asks for water. She gives him milk. She covers him with a blanket. She tucks him in. And in a movie, we've all seen a movie where, where a woman, or likely a woman, covers someone up, tucks them in, and it always is there. They place that there to show that the woman has compassion and love, right? Like that she's sweet. She has a good heart. And so Jael covers him up. Cue the lullaby, Sisera's going night-night. He's got, had his milk. He's got his nightlight on. We can see the tender heart of Jael. Verse 20, St Sisera says to Jael, stand in the doorway of the tent. If someone, and in the Hebrew it's if any man, okay, if any man comes by and asks you, is anyone in there? Say no. So he says to her, guard the tent, okay? And if, anybody, if any man shows up, and it has to be a man because there's no way a woman is going to conquer me. Sisera, general, Hawkeye, bad guy, iron chariots. No woman's going to conquer me. So if any man comes in, say no one's here. So he's tucked in. It's night-night time. Verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> In a move not expected by the evil general nor the audience, uh, she thrust a tent peg through the temple of Sisera. Mountain goat comes out of nowhere. <laughs> I mean, she really hit the nail on the head. <laughs> The prophecy of verse 9 is fulfilled, yet in a completely unexpected manner. It's Jael, not Deborah, who is, gets delivered. It is Jael who delivers Sisera. I mean, she nails him. 
And in just in case you're wondering how serious this injury might have been, the text says she drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. No kidding. Maybe the three most unnecessary words in all of the Bible. And he died. Next chapter in, in, in Deborah's song, they reiterate it again. Read this. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Is everybody clear on what happened to Sisera? He dead. He's not coming back. What a shock to Sisera. Because he knew only a man could take him down. I think the last thing that went through Sisera's mind, except for the tent peg, was that a woman was going to conquer him. In the audience, the early readers, they're cheering. They're celebrating. Why? It's a bloody story. But the early audience, they're thrilled. Why? Because evil doesn't win. Because injustice of the powerful does not have the last word. Because of all the darkness and ambiguity in our world, there really is a moral arc to the universe. In reading this story, the big question for me was like, poor Sisera, you know? He was betrayed by an ally. That's not an honorable way to die. That's not an honorable way for the opposing general to, to be killed. He should have been killed in battle by an Israelite general named Lightning. We almost have this temptation to victimize Sisera. But if you want to know how evil and vile this Sisera was, we get a glimpse of it in chapter 5 in Deborah's song. In Deborah's song, by the way, is thought to be one of the oldest portions of Scripture um, ever written. It's, it's, it's poetic in Hebrew, and it's an ancient style. It's beautiful. She creates this little fictional moment of, of picturing Sisera's mom waiting at the window, waiting for her victorious son after he conquers the Israelites to come home. And she's there, and she paints this picture. Through the window in chapter 5, peered Sisera's mother. Behind the latisse, she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? Why is he late coming home from victory? The wisest of her ladies answered her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man. Colorful garments is plunder for Sisera. So in this fictional moment, these two women, the mother of Sisera and her handmaids are saying, well, you know what's taking them so long to come back? It's, it's they're dividing all the spoils. A woman or two for each man. The Israelite women to these people, are no more than one or two broads. And actually, in the Hebrew, it's even more graphic. It's a womb or two for each soldier. Raham, rahama, a womb or two. They're just body parts. That's how Sisera rolls. He conquers somebody, he takes a woman or two. A womb or two. You can picture a modern-day telling of this much more vulgar than womb. Israelites' women are reduced to mere items. The act of abusing and assaulting innocent women who are made in the image of God has been a frequent part of war from the beginning of time and even unto today. A Christian scholar by the name of Elaine Storkey in her book, Scars Across Humanity, Understanding and Overcoming Violence Against Women, 
She says this, and this is actually, she's speaking about our world, not Deborah's. Acts of violence to women ages 15 to 44 produce more death, disability, and mutilation than cancer, malaria, and traffic accidents combined. 2017, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein uh, abuse stories, actress Alyssa Milano encouraged women who had experienced sexual assault to use the hashtag MeToo, and within minutes, we were flooded with millions of stories, and every one of them with a name and a face behind them. And you'd think that the church would be the greatest champion for women, and often you'd be wrong. Elaine Storky in her book says that 95% of Christian women who go to Christian churches saying they have never heard a sermon declaring abuse is wrong. Let's change that. Abuse and assault by those in power on any victim, and in particular women, is wrong and evil. It's not God's will. And if you're in a situation like that, get out. And the church should be the loudest and the first to say so. It's wrong. It's evil. It's not the will of God. The need for heroes has not passed. We need heroes in our homes. We need heroes in our neighborhoods. We need heroes in our churches to rise up and confront the evil injustices that we encounter every day. I want to invite Macy and the worship band to come up. And there's a great battle in our world today between darkness and light. What battle is God calling you to fight? It's probably not going to involve a hammer and a tent peg. But what battle is the Lord stirring in your spirit right now? You don't fight alone. What battle are you called to fight? Nikita Khrushchev was a general in Russia under the leadership of dictator Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin committed tremendous atrocities of his people and others, thousands and thousands. And when Stalin died, Nikita Khrushchev is at a rally and he's at this rally and he says, uh, uh, he's condemning all the acts of Stalin. And And someone in the crowd yells, why? Why didn't you say anything? And Khrushchev goes, who said that? Everybody freezes. And then he says, that's why. Fear. Fear. Fog uh, can fill and block seven neighborhoods, 100 feet deep, 100 feet up in the sky, condensed fog can make blind seven whole neighborhoods. But scientists say that if you were to condense all that fog that blocks sight, if you were to condense it into water, it wouldn't even fill a solo cup. There's no substance. That's what fear does. The fears that that you might have lack substance. They lack substance, and God can clear away the all the fears that we have so that we can light the world the way we're supposed to. At the end of the story, Deborah says this in chapter five, may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Yes, and that's my prayer for you too. Whatever battle you're fighting, may you be like the sun when it's rising in its strength to shine through the darkness so that we can light the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for 
your call to not fear, that it is one of the most repeated commands in all of scripture, do not fear. So whatever battle we are being called to fight, God, let fear dissipate like fog. Let your great light shine through it that we may see the world around us, that we may condemn the evils and injustices that might be going on and show grace and mercy and compassion and above all love. So God, I pray for those in this place right now, God, who are, they're just sensing your call in their life for this battle. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is, God, but you do. I pray, God, that you'd give them courage like we see in Deborah, like we see in Ruth, like we see in Esther. God, would you give them courage? And God, we pause now and we pray for anyone in this place who has ever been abused or assaulted by someone in power, someone with authority, someone who's stronger than them. And God, the scars that remain, would you heal? God, I, and I pray, God, that if there's someone in this, this auditorium this morning that is still in one of those situations, that you give them the courage to leave and to say, not again, no more. God, bring healing, bring protection, bring comfort and love. We pray for that, Jesus. We thank you for your heart, for those on the underside of society, those who are being hurt, those who are being oppressed, those who are being abused. God, show up in a powerful way. Be our deliverer. May, this, may we be like the sun when it rises in its strength in the morning. Let us shine through the, the darkness. We love you, God, and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we declare the faithfulness of God, as we declare that he's the king of our hearts. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from, oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life, oh, he is my song. You are good. You're good. Oh, come on, let's declare his goodness. You are good. You're good. Oh, come on, in every circumstance, you are good. You're good. Oh, you are good. You're good. Oh, let the king of my heart the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves, oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins, the echo of my days, oh, he is
is my come on let's try it again let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails the anchor in the waves oh he is my song let the king of my heart be the fire inside my
God, thank you that you're the God of all comfort and that you comfort us in our time of need. God, we thank you that you're bigger than any battle we're called to fight. You're bigger than 900 iron chariots and you're bigger than $5,000 debt. You're bigger than Hawkeye, Keenan Swift, General Sisera. And you're bigger than our addictions. God, whatever battle you've called us to fight, God, help us to trust in you that you're good and that you fight for us. We love you, Father. We're thankful for your goodness. We thank you for the cross. We're thankful for all that you've done, all that you're doing in what you're doing right now, in this place, in our hearts, God. Let's just continue to go and declare that together, that you are good.